Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. Good morning, everybody. Is everybody alive this morning? I love it. I love it. I love it. There is going to be a lot of tears this week happening along a lot of other homes. We're going to have the tears of the parents who are sending their kids off to kindergarten for the first time. And they go, oh my gosh, my baby's growing up. And you're going to have those kind of tears. You're going to have the tears probably for someone on the front row over here going, I don't want to go back to school. This stinks. And then you're going to have the tears of the parents who are going, thank you, God. Thank you that they're going back. So good, right? You're going to have all kinds of tears amongst many different emotions. But before we get to school, we still have two days of Labor Day weekend, which means you have two days left to go to the Minnesota State Fair. It is fair time, baby, okay? So you're going to have two kind of people in this room, maybe three. The first one is I love the fair. I'm going to the fair. I'm going to be there for 10 hours. I'm going to pay $400. I don't care. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to give it my whole thing. $400 gets you like four items, and it'll, it, but it'll be good. There'll be fun items. Then you have the other side, which is like, I would rather eat a piece of wood than go to the Minnesota State Fair. Okay? You have that. Then you have some of the other people where it's like, yeah, it's okay. But here's where I, I kind of land in the middle, okay? Because quite frankly, I like going to the state fair because of the food. I mean, that's why you go. I uh, don't like going to the fair because of the people, which there's a lot of them. I love people, but uh, not that many of them. So, but here's why I'm going to kind of highlight why I personally enjoy the Minnesota State Fair, okay? Because you have things like this. You have a pile of tater tots, fried potato goodness. That alone is great. Then you stack on some cheese curds and then dump hot gravy over the top and you have this wonderful delicacy known as poutine. And if that looks terrible to you, blame Canada, because that's their, that's their creation. Poutine is a massive dish in Canada, and it's, I personally enjoy it. But I know that's not for everybody. Personally, some people are like, that's absolutely disgusting. You know what's not disgusting? Cheesecake. Cheesecake is delicious. It's ooey, it's gooey, it's delectable. It is a true, like, dessert of desserts. What could make it better? Let's fry it. Let's cube it up and let's fry it and dip it into some puree strawberries. It is absolutely delicious. We had it this week. I am kind of drooling right now thinking about it. Then you have things like this. Soft pretzels. Those are good. Cheese curds. Those are good. Pizza. That's good. You know what's better? Combining all three together. They have a, I don't know, Dylan did come through with the picture. You have a pizza-style cheese curd stuffed pretzel at the state fair. I'm not even going to begin to describe how many calories are in that thing, but the thing is, it doesn't matter. Because when you're walking outside on a day like today, you're in a deficit anyway. So just have four of them. Then the last one. I'm going to show our wonderful model here who uh, has the last item. He, look at that glass of lemonade. I'm talking about the glass, not Riley, all right? 
you have a glass of lemonade. But if you go to the next picture, this is not your mama's lemonade that you have on a summer day. This is pickle-infused lemonade. And if you're like me, you're thinking, that might be the worst thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. Pickles and lemonade, are you kidding me? That is like the worst combination of all time, and I was so ready to hate it, but I loved it, and I don't know why. I don't understand why that was good. I really don't, but it was good. It was incredibly hot. I'm convinced I could have been drinking motor oil at that point in the day, but if it was cold, it would have tasted great because it was hot, it was steamy, uh, you know, all the things Meg is used to. So I was like, wow, I was like, I just complimented myself and nobody got it with me, but you're awake this morning. All right, it's good. Here is, I love the state fair for all of these reasons, okay? I, I would go there. I, I, I love just eating uh, great, great food. My metabolism is that of an 18-year-old, so I can eat all of that kind of stuff, and it's good. But here's the thing. There's one reason that I don't particularly love the state fair, and it's because of this next picture right here. For some of you, you're like, that sounds awesome. I can people watch. For some of you, you're like, I, I get hyperventilating just looking at that picture because there's so many people here. I, don't, I, can't, I should have looked up the numbers at the State Fair. I know there's a lot of people here, but here's one thing I know for sure. If you were to venture down to the State Fair today and go and brave the heat, you're going to have a crowd just like this. And for some of you, you love it. But when I personally look at a street and it starts to swim, not my thing. When a street starts to swim, it is not my thing. Mark chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. I can't attest to how many people were actually there at the time, but here's what I do know. When Mark chapter 2 was written, the time that Jesus was alive, 2,000 years ago, the area around the Sea of Galilee was very, very popular. A first century writer who's very accredited along this time named Josephus predicts that roughly 3 million people lived in the area known as Galilee. That's a lot of people. A little bigger than St. Francis, as a matter of fact. 3 million people. And particularly along the lake is where there was a lot of people because the Sea of Galilee, the lake, if you will, was the hub of commerce. It's where people fished. It's where people worked. There was always big crowds happening around this area. And so Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd starts to follow him. He was getting popular. People heard, this is the guy who healed somebody who was paralyzed. This is the guy who prayed for somebody who had leprosy, and I watched the disease go out of their body right before my very eyes. This is the guy who heals the sick. I want to go see him. So Jesus has these people following him along the lake, and there's already a very populated area. But in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of the street swimming, we experience this in verse 14. As he, he being Jesus, walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Jesus was just walking along the Sea of Galilee with all these different people around him, and he takes a moment to stop dead in his tracks and look at a man named Levi. 
look him dead in the eyes and say, hey, follow me. If you stop dead in your tracks at the Minnesota State Fair, you're going to become a part of the pavement. But for this particular time, Jesus is the one drawing the crowd. So you have this entire crowd behind him, following him as he navigates his way through Galilee. And when the leader stops, you stop. So I want you to picture this. You have all these people hustling and bustling, bringing their fish to market, bringing their nets back to their boat, getting their stuff in the boat. It's already a busy area. And you have Jesus navigating his way through the crowd with a whole entourage behind him following. When Jesus stops and everybody stops in their tracks, he says, hey, Levi, son of Alphaeus, follow me. This man named Levi is not a popular dude. As a matter of fact, this man named Levi, we know he is a tax collector because he's in a tax collection booth. See how that works? And as a tax collector, you were not well liked. As a matter of fact, you were hated vigorously, vehemently. You were the scum of the earth in the eyes of your fellow peers because as a tax collector, What was happening is you have the little guy who doesn't have much power, who doesn't have much resources, that being Israel, being bullied by the big, powerful, stronger, more resource-rich people known as the Romans. And because the Romans were bullying the Israelites, they could basically say, hey, you're going to pay us taxes because if you're not, we're going to kill you. Say what you want about our government. I don't think we have it that bad, okay? This particular time is if you didn't pay taxes, you died, quite literally. And so what's happening is you have the Jews who are being forced to give up of their money in taxes to pay the Romans. To make matters worse, the Romans are like, hey, we're not going to do our dirty work for us or for ourselves. We're going to make them do it. So what would happen is the Romans would find Jewish people, fellow Israelites, and say, hey, we want you to sit in the tax collection booth and you collect the taxes. But here's why you would possibly want to do that. It's because you would basically say, hey, I'm going to pay $200, and that's my booth. That's No one else sits in that booth. And they're saying, okay, great, you collect the taxes. Whatever you collect over and above in taxes, you can pocket the rest. So what happens is you have the Jews, these tax collectors, who are quite literally stealing from their peers. If Rome wants $10 in taxes, they're going to say, hey, you actually owe 14 because you had that kid last, last spring, and he's got a weird ear, so you're going to have to pay me an extra 4 bucks for that. It's weird. They are just self-imposed taxes that make no sense. So what happened is you have these people who are hated, and they're getting isolated. So much so that if you were a tax collector, you brought shame on your entire family. Your entire family. So you have Levi who says, hey, I'm going to go be a tax collector. And his parents are spit on. They're hated. He brought shame to his entire family, so they had to kick him out. He is 100% on his own. How do you think Jesus handled this? Jesus is walking in a crowd. There is thousands, if not tens of thousands of people everywhere. You ever tried to find somebody at the state fair? impossible there's so many people you can't possibly find anybody unless you're like on the phone and trying to say i'm next to the mini donut stand or i'm next to the whatever stand and you still have to struggle your way through that 
Yet here you are in this sea of people. Jesus looks at one dude and says, hey, I want you to follow me. That Greek word for follow me is basically saying, hey, I want you to leave everything you've got, leave it all behind, and devote your life to following me. Rabbis would have this kind of call, if you will, like, hey, I'm a teacher, I'm a rabbi, you follow me now. So you got to spend your time studying for me, following me around, and that's exactly what's happening. But as you might imagine, it's an honorable assignment. If you have a rabbi saying, hey, I want you to follow me, it's a big deal. Because they don't just hand out these invites like nothing. So here you are. There's two major things happening here in this particular story. You have a massive crowd, a state fair-like crowd, gathering along the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus stops in the middle of it and calls somebody out. But the second biggest thing you have is you have the person in particular that he calls out. Culturally, here's what this would look like. If Jesus said, follow me along all these witnesses, along all these people, I promise you that people would be like, are you kidding me? Him? You want him. Do you know what that dude did? Do you know what in the world he's done to my family, to my brothers? That dude is corrupt. That dude belongs at the bottom of the lake. That dude, there's no way you possibly want him to follow you. When I tell you that there was hatred here, I mean it. This was like vigorous, vivacious hatred. And if that's not crazy enough, I want you to see what happened. Because after Jesus says, follow me, look what verse 15 says. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. He left. In the middle of his job, he left. And what's important and significant about this is for Levi to leave his tax collection booth. He was essentially saying, I'm never going back to that place. If you walk out on Rome, there's no second chances. So when he walked out the door, here's what he left. Job security. Loads of cash. Levi was loaded because he was stealing from people. Rome was giving him some money. This dude was loaded. So when he walked out, he not only lost his job security, he lost what would be his reasonable source of income. And the biggest, perhaps most in, in, integral thing, is he lost his protection. If you're on the big guy's side, you have all the protection in the world. They're not going to let you get bullied around. But he left all those things to follow Jesus. He quits on the spot. And what we see in the next verse is the next thing we see is Jesus and his disciples are at Levi's house. Can you imagine hosting Jesus in your house? You make your kids vacuum twice when company's coming over. If Jesus is coming over, you're going to vacuum three times. You're going to mop the blinds. I know that makes no sense, but you're going to do it because this house is going to be spotless if Jesus is coming over. Levi invites Jesus over to his house, and not just Jesus and his disciples, he invites all of his buddies. And not the buddies that are like buddy-buddy with him, but his peers. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. You know what's happening here? I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you, but I'm bringing it all back around in just a second. What's happening here in Mark 2, the reason they're having dinner together, is not because, ah, let's have a barbecue, Jesus is in town. 
No, this is something more significant. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 19, in the Old Testament, when Elijah, a prophet, finds his successor, Elisha, look what Elisha does. Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. In 1 Kings chapter 19, when he got this invitation to go and follow Elijah, Elisha said, I'm not going back. I am committing to this 100%. So much so that I'm going to burn my farming equipment so I physically have nothing to go back to. They didn't have combines 2,000 years ago. They had oxen and yokes. So he burns all of it. Or what Levi is doing in this particular thing is the same exact thing. He's having one last hurrah because he knows from this point forward, I'm following Jesus completely. I'm not coming back to what's going on here. And how the story ends is this right here in Mark chapter 2, verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat? with tax collectors and sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This whole dinner is going on inside. Remember, he's got a big house. He's loaded. Levi's got this big house with all kinds of people in it. You have Jesus and his disciples Levi and all of his corrupt brothers, his other corrupt tax collectors, and they're all just hanging out together, breaking bread, having laughs, hugging each other. Then you have the weirdos who are peeping in the windows, the Pharisees. Like, what's he doing in there? Who's got that nosy neighbor? Nobody raised their hand. You are the nosy neighbor. Congratulations. Right? But I had this neighbor growing up where it's like, it felt like, I never told him anything, but he knew everything was going on. So I heard, I heard uh, tracks going well. Yeah. Never told you that. Oh, I saw your spike bag. Oh, cool. That's weird, right? This is exactly what's happening here in Mark chapter 2. The Pharisees are on the outside. They're looking in, and they're kind of going, what's he doing sitting? Why, why is he, why is he uh, eating dinner with those weirdos? They're, they're, like, they're, they're perplexed, but the reason they're upset is because if you had dinner with someone who was corrupt, you were basically condoning what they were doing. If you shared dinner together, you were associating with them, and that was a big no-no. The name Pharisees means separated ones. The Pharisees were separated from anything unholy, so they wouldn't dare be caught next to somebody who was a sinner because they're unholy. And if I'm next to someone who's unholy, then I'm unholy. Yet Jesus, in hearing their questions, says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We're in a new sermon series starting today called B. B-E. You'll notice here that the, the word B is a verb. That's what that little V means. To be is a state of existence. What I particularly love about this story in Mark chapter 2 is Jesus 
went right to the man exactly as he was and met him there. You have the Pharisees who are saying, oh, those are wicked people. They're separating. They're unholy. They're holy. You have this, this distinction. But when Jesus goes to this man named Levi in the middle of the tax collector's booth, you see him going right to his place of work and meeting him there. Jesus met James and John at the waterfront in the middle of their job. He met the woman at the well at the well after she was running from all the other women because she was with her sixth man, five of which were her husbands in the past. You have this paralytic at Bethesda who we talked about a few weeks ago who he's been laying like lame for 38 years and Jesus goes to him and you have Levi at the tax booth. And Jesus goes to him in the middle of the crowd and calls him out and says, I want you to follow me. Jesus goes and meets people exactly where they are. Because that's where he wants to speak to them. If you know enough about grammar and everything else, be is a future tense of the verb are. Jesus meets you where you are. Because there's someone you're going to be if you follow him. There is a version of you, everybody. There is a version of you that God knows that is still yet to come. There is a version of you, of your person, your life. There is a version of you that might seem impossible to you, but that God knows. A version of you that is out from under the oppression of addiction. A view of you and a version of you that is compassionate and merciful, even though right now you don't think you have a single ounce of it in your body. There is a version of you that is not tied down by the fear, the worry, the conflict, the anxiety, but is instead freed up to go and live the courageous bold life that God calls you to live. There is a version of you that maybe your heart longs for. You want to be that guy. You want to be that girl. You want to be that person in the worst way, but you don't feel like you can ever measure up to it. And there's a version of you that maybe you didn't even foresee coming, but God had destined for you the entire time. There is a version of you that is not yet here, that will come to be if we did exactly what Levi did and follow Christ. Because here is the reality. You are becoming every single day, whether you realize it or not. You're always becoming something. You're either becoming more compassionate or more resentful. There's no one between. You're becoming either more optimistic or more pessimistic. You're becoming more forgiving or more jaded. You're becoming more like Jesus or not like Jesus. You are always becoming something, whether you wish to or not. You are always becoming. And so the question becomes, who do you want to become? Who do you want to be? Because the craziest part to me in all of this is our responsibility in the equation. If I were to pull the audience, I'm not going to do this, but if we were to have a one-on-one conversation, I were to just put an anonymous survey out there saying, who wants to be different? I guarantee you almost everybody in this room would say, yeah, I want to be different in some area to some capacity. I want to be different. So what happens is you have this thing where you go, yes, I want to be different. So culture says, hey, if you want to be different, you got to make it happen, right? 
If you want to be jacked out of your mind, get to the gym, get the creatine, get the aminos, get everything, and all that's going to probably get you there. Except for me. You didn't have to laugh that loud, okay? On a more holistic note, I want to be more organized. I want to be more ambitious. I want to be more everything. And so you can go to Barnes & Noble and spend a small fortune and read a bunch of books and try to will yourself into being something different because culture says if you want to be different, if you want to be somebody different, make it happen. That's good. There's merit to that. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you want to be different, sweet, surrender. It's a completely different mindset. Because here's what happens. Do you want to be different? Yes, I do. So what do you got to do? Just follow me. Don't try and make it happen on your own. Don't try and will your way into this. You got to follow me. So many times we want to be closer to Jesus. We want to be a better person. We want to to be something different. And so we start to go, what do I got to do? I got to get my act together. I got to get clean. I got to get my marriage in order. I got to get my kids under control. I got to clean up my mouth. I got to clean up my mind. I got to put on a brave face and put on this mask. I got to do, 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 to be something different. That's not what Mark chapter 2 says. Do you notice he meets him in the middle of the chaos? He meets him in the middle of the crowd. He looks at him and he says, hey, Levi, I want you to follow me. Not, hey, Levi, come on over. But before you do, pay back the money you stole. Go apologize to everybody you stole it from. Repent and fall on your knees and pray for two hours. He didn't say any of that. What he said is he said, I want you to follow me surrender and trust what i'm asking you to do and make no mistake that sounds simple but that's not easy he had to get a little uncomfortable see he had to leave his job and his security he had to fully commit to this thing he had to face the music do you know what that walk of shame would have been like? I want you to just put yourself in this story because he's in the middle of this tax booth and he has a sea of people who hate him. It's one thing to be at the state fair and see everybody, but imagine everybody in that crowd hates you. Can you imagine the guts it took to walk out from that tax booth and walk to Jesus through all the people who probably want you dead, honestly? That's tough, but he did it anyway. And here's what's really cool about the story. This is Mark chapter 2. If you read Matthew chapter 9, let me read this to you quick. It might be on the screen, it might not, but let me just read this to you. Matthew chapter 9, tell me if this sounds familiar. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why their teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you can probably fill in the rest of the detail. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's the same story. Same guy. Scholars really believe, they're not sure why he changes his name in his own gospel, but Levi really is the same guy as Matthew. Which means, 
Matthew. A guy who was in a tax collector's booth with no purpose beyond stealing from his peers is called out by Jesus himself. And he becomes a man that would write one of the most comprehensive, genius, literary devices in all of Scripture about the man named Jesus. Greek experts say that the, the intricacies and the, the, the just genius little Easter eggs that Matthew has in his gospel are insane. Because he was really good at what he does. Yeah, he, he stole, but at the core of who he was, Matthew was organized, he was gifted, he, was, he, he knew math, he, he had all these things that, guess what, the other 11 disciples didn't have. Which is precisely why Jesus calls him out and says, hey, I want you on my team. Yeah, I see who you are. Yeah, I see that you got a bunch of stuff. But guess what? I don't care about who you are right now because I know who you're going to be. And if you follow me, you're going to make that journey from who you are to who you're going to become because I'm omniscient. I know who you are. I know everything about you. The only question is, are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to follow me? Because here's the deal. Matthew would become one of the 12. He would write one of the books of our Bible that we read 2,000 years later. The thing he wrote has been changing eternities for millennia. Millions, if not billions of people. From a tax collector to a world-changing, eternity-shifting author. A man who would be charged with going in, starting the early church. The reason we are here in this building right now hearing about a man named Jesus is because one of the 11 disciples after Jesus died continued on the boldness to say, we're going to take the good news to, to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to everybody else. And the reason we have a church in the United States of America is because of the obedience and faithfulness of the original 11. They're still changing lives from what they did. So why does this matter? My question for you is who are you now that Jesus is going to make you into something and what's that going to mean for the world? Because here's what happens so much. So many times we think that we have to get everything right. We have to fix it ourselves to get right and then we can start to live out our purpose. But the exact opposite is true. Jesus steps into the mess. He steps into the uncertainty, into the insecurities. He steps into your life exactly where you are and meets you there. And he says, if you will follow me, you will be the person I've called you to be. Exactly as you are, exactly in the middle of your struggle, in your, your, your strife, whatever it is, he meets you. And here's the part that really, really sticks with me. I truly believe if Jesus were to lay out a roadmap of what we'd have to go through to be the people that we're going to be, we would never step into it. Because some of your most difficult seasons are the things that shape you in the most profound ways. When he stepped out of that tax collector's booth, all he knew is he was following Jesus. But here's what that would entail. Following Jesus would bring him to being stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a storm 
twice and nearly losing his life. Following Jesus, he would come face to face with a man who was demon-possessed, who was dangerous, only to have the man come this close until Jesus takes the demon out of him. If only he knew that following Jesus would mean he would have to live a nomadic lifestyle, living on his own, trusting God for provision at every turn instead of trusting in his own power. He might have never done it. But if he didn't do it, here's what he would have also missed. He would have missed out on seeing 15,000 people get fed from five loaves and two fish. He would have missed out on a leper, a man who truly did have sores and cancer all throughout his body, and he would see the man come and fall at Jesus' feet only for Jesus to pray for him and for all of it to fall away. He would miss a man who was paralyzed, get up and dance again. He would miss the most life-changing group of men he would ever spend his life with. He would have missed it if he would have looked at what he had to go through to get there. So what does that mean for all of us in 2023? Who are you going to be? Who are you going to be? Are you going to be the person that Jesus has called you to be? Because guess what? Every single person in this room has a plan. God has a plan for you from the moment you were conceived. He has a plan for your life. And sometimes we run from it. Sometimes we go our own way. But it doesn't change the fact that he still has that same plan for you. It's who you're going to be. Levi could have easily said, you know what? I've I've made too many mistakes. I can't possibly follow you, Jesus. But he did he became the person he's going to be. Matthew, life-changing. A man named Saul, persecutor of the church, enslaved thousands of Christians, becomes Paul, one of the most prolific writers in all of the New Testament. Gideon, hiding for his life to being the leader of an army that stands up for Israel. Moses, who had a speech impediment, would become one of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament. Who are you going to be? Because I know you have reasons as to why you can't be that. I know you have things that you think disqualify you. But what if I told you the very things that you're using to disqualify you are the things God wants to use to impact somebody else? What if the very things that are behind you are the things that are God's going to use to bring some new revival into somebody else's life? What if the very season you're walking through right now that stinks, that's difficult, that's hard, that's life-changing and heartbreaking, what if it's that season that you're walking through right now that God's going to use 10 years from now to breathe life and hope into somebody who's walking through the same exact thing? What if? What if the person you are going to be is the person that God wants to shape to you right now? You're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. But who are you going to be? Proverbs 3 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Be not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. In all your ways, submit to him. In all your ways. When you're struggling, submit. When you don't feel good enough, submit. When you're confused, submit. Why? Because he will make your path straight. 
you'll make your path straight. We ought to be. So many times we try to do and do and do and do, but God's calling us to be. Dylan, can you throw that, that sermon graphic back up? I want to show you something. Be is a verb. It's something you're always intentionally doing. It's not something that just happens. It's something you choose every day. You have to choose every day. Surrender to him every day when it's hard and when it's easy. But here's what happens in the process. You become the person you're called to be. Here at the church, here are our values. Belong, believe, become. All of which involve you being first and foremost. When you walk into this place, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be yourself. But what happens in the process is we believe that when you walk into this church, you belong. Whether you're an atheist or a believer, whether you're an addict or whether you're not, whether you are a person who's divorced or whether you've been married for 40 years, it doesn't matter because when you walk into this place, you belong because you belong to him. And when you belong to this place, we hope you experience that where you believe in Jesus, a life-changing, active, living, breathing Holy Spirit that is alive and active in our day and age right now, a God who is alive and active in your life if you're willing to let him. We believe in that. But when you believe in that, and you let him change you from the inside out, guess what happens? You become the person you were always meant to be. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you got it all figured out. But what it means is you're going to allow God to use you in a way that doesn't just change your life, doesn't just change your kids, but it changes an eternity for somebody else. All of the biblical writers that do such amazing things, they had an opportunity to not. They had an opportunity to say no. But when they said yes, everything changed. So my call to action, my invite, whatever it is I have for you today, my my challenge to you is will you allow yourself to be? Would you stop doing for God? Would you stop trying to impress him? Stop trying to muscle your way through this. Stop trying to just put on and say all the right things and just be. I don't care if you've been serving Jesus for 40 years or whether you've never served him in your entire life. you got to be. God has been convicting me and working on me for weeks on this because I think I feel like so many times I should just know this by now, but it doesn't matter. Because he wants to step in and just be present with him. I don't want any person to feel forced around me. I want them to be their self. And if I feel that, what do you think he feels? We're his kids. He wants us to be exactly how we're going to be. So this week, my challenge for you, where are you at? Ask yourself that question. Where am I at? Am I struggling? Let him help. Ask for help. Am I doing great? Great. Let's give credit where credit's due. Am I wanting more? Great. Let's follow and become. Where are you at? Ask yourself that this week. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you. God, I thank you. Because I believe, God, that there are Saul's in this room right now that are going to become Paul's. That there are Matthew's, the tax collectors, that are going to become authors and fathers of the early church. I believe there are Gideons who are too scared to even function another day, but... They're going to become courageous and bold. 
to impact people far beyond their comprehension or reach. God, I believe that as we step into a new season, God, that you are doing something new. And it starts with us being. It starts with us just following you more than anything else. Jesus, I believe you are not done moving in lives. God, I pray that this is not just a church service. This is not just something that we do. This is a trajectory-shifting moment right here where we choose to stop doing and to start being. To stop running. And to start accepting that you love us exactly as we are you love us too much to leave us there. So Jesus, lead us, guide us, direct us, shape us into who we're called to be. Father, we give you this day. In your name we pray. Everybody said, amen. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.